Right, so endurance sport by nature is catabolic. It breaks you down. Now our goal is to reduce how much breakdown we can have and mitigate that. So a year-round strength training program is very, very important. One, you're mitigating injury and you're maintaining strength, which force production can equal performance. Plyometrics, I think, are a must for everyone, for bone health, for tendon health, for just honestly everyday life. No one gets hurt going up the stairs. <laughs> they get hurt coming down the stairs, right? Welcome to the Training Peaks Coachcast. I'm your host, Dirk Friel. In each episode, we'll sit down with industry experts to discuss coaching methodologies, the latest research, and leading tools for endurance training. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources. My next guest on the Coachcast is Chris Lee, who is the founder and head strength coach at Kinesis Integrated in Boulder, Colorado. Chris not only works directly with athletes, but he also works in partnership with endurance coaches to help them implement strength programs designed specifically for endurance athletes. Chris is a strength coach for Tin Man Elite Running Team. He has a degree in physical education and exercise science and is also NSCA certified. I'm excited to conduct this interview in light of new strength training features we are launching soon at Training Peaks mobile and web apps. Chris has been a trusted resource within our development of these new solutions and I've been working with him as my strength coach using these new training tools. I hope you enjoy this episode. Chris Lee here with me, not only an expert in strength, but uh, also my own personal strength coach. So I'm super psyched to have him on the pod today. Chris, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dirk. Appreciate it. This is yeah. a fun chat. Yeah, it's going to be cool. And, you know, one thing that we've been using... Uh, between us to kind of keep me on track and a lot of folks don't know about is that Training Peaks is actually coming out with our own strength functionality. So embedded within the Training Peaks app, no additional widget to add or anything, will be strength training. So we're super excited about that. Um, before we decided to build it, we did our own internal research and we found that more than 90% of all Training Peaks coaches prescribe strength. So I don't think we're here today to actually convince people to strength train, which is good. It's awesome. Yeah. We maybe can talk about that and the evolution of strength training within endurance sports. But majority of our coaches are planning strength, but yet that tends to happen outside of Training Peaks. So now we can uh, really professionalize that service, bring it within Training Peaks, I'm super excited. I'm going to give a little preview here. If you can see, if yeah. you're watching YouTube, there's one of Chris's workouts for me. And I can open up uh, the single leg glute bridge, for example, here. And, you know, I'm supposed to do three sets of 15. And maybe I don't know how to do that. So I can click on the video and up pops the video in, in app. So really wicked cool. Um, look for this to come out for everybody to access uh, early 2024. So... Um, the other cool thing, I've never had this before when I worked with a strength coach is I walk in the gym and up on the big screen is my workout of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And we just kind of walk, walk through it, you know, uh, exercise by exercise and kind of tick them off. So, um, yeah, with that said, um, Chris, a uh, little, little bit of background from you, yeah. you know, how long have you been uh, strength training? 
or been a strength um, coach? I've been strength coach for almost like 10 years now, coming from swimming to triathlon and strength being always my kind of my best friend oh. uh, through all the different sports. Yeah. So yeah. were you a distance or sprinter or swimmer? <laughs> I was a sprinter. I swam the 50, the yeah. 100. The 200 IM was long for me, right? So that was my right. endurance event. And then I was like, huh, wouldn't it be funny to try triathlon, ah. a super endurance event, and see what happens? And I was like, wow, this is kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. So then you took up uh, more of a true, and I mean, swimming's endurance, but short endurance. Yeah. Um, that was a bit of a, a power kind of background. So you brought that background to endurance athletes, you know, becoming a strength coach and maybe you see the world a little differently than most Ironman athletes do. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more about your philosophy around starting to work with an athlete, you know, specifically, you know, with me, we went through, I think it was almost a two hour assessment. I've yeah, never, it was like, like two fifteen Cause we got to chatting and it became like, <laughs> yeah, Okay, <laughs> we could have done it in an hour 45. But the thing is, it was a full thorough body movement assessment, which I've never had done before. And I've always mm. wanted it because I knew I definitely knew I had some weak links, but you definitely found them pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about your philosophy and how you start working with athletes uh, in the gym. Yeah, so it's really simple. I try to boil it down to what is your biggest limiter and let's try to work on that right so that assessment is so important if you just jump into something and assume you know something about someone's body you're probably missing the big picture so the goal is to take the time and look at someone's global movement patterns and larger movements down to some more fine-tuned smaller movements um, some individual range of motion, muscle testing to see what's working, what's not working, what can be improved, um, and also how it applies to the demand of your sport. Right. Right. So if you're a runner and you can't jump up and down on one leg, well, that's probably an issue. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, yeah, piecing together the puzzle and figuring out what pieces are, you know, not fitting so well or what pieces just are missing, right? Yeah. And we got to go find that puzzle piece and plug it in. Right? Well, so that's and, the base philosophy there. Yeah, and oft oftentimes, you know, you're, you know, you're a team member within an athlete's professional group. And I think that's a right. growing trend, you know? And like with me, I actually came to you after having worked with a physical therapist, like physical therapist saying, okay, now we're to this level, you need a program year round to, to get you through this injury. And and for me, it was my hip and my back, my right hip and my lower back. And I knew like it was getting, it, it wasn't, it's not a, a real true, true injury, but just like these pain points and weak points that I have. Um, I did have a, a four week stretch where I was, I just barely could move because my back was so bad this, this summer. Um, so that you, you know, if you think about yourself as a strength coach, an athlete may have a physical therapist they work with, and then they have their, their head coach, their day-to-day -day coach, the triathlon coach, cycling coach, running coach, whatever it may be. Um, so are, are you working with coaches and, and physical trainers or physical therapists, you know, along with the athlete, um, in a, in a team approach? 
Yeah, all the time. I think that is my preferred method of work is being able to collaborate with the team and try to understand the lens that everyone's looking through. Um, ultimately, the head coach is going to have the big picture. And for the physical therapist or for the strength coach, which is someone like myself, understanding, okay, what is the big picture? What does the coach want to accomplish here? Okay, how do I fit into that picture of the goal for this athlete? And how do I supplement or complement that training? Um, and for the physical therapist, what are the main things they have identified from you know, performance or injury screen that we need to be constantly focusing on and addressing, right? So having that big picture approach and understanding where you fit in and how can you help? For example, if you have a, say a cyclist who's looking to increase their, I don't know, top end power, right? And they have been seeing a physical therapist for some, you know, a little bit of back pain, right? So typical cyclist, right? And with a little bit of tight hips and back pain. Okay, we know that we need to continue working on their posterior line strength. We know we need to be looking at their anterior line and their um, lateral line mobility. Those adductors are involved in that equation, hypothetically. So we want to also support what the physical therapist is doing. A lot of physical therapists spend a lot of time on treatment, some time on correctives and exercises, or a lot of times on exercises as well. Um, but my goal is to enforce what they also have been doing. So I can say, you know, hey, Dirk's physical therapist. Um, great. You have Dirk doing these exercises. I'll also focus on these areas so that we're staying consistent and, you know, all moving in the same direction. Right. One, well, ideally, athletes aren't, are not coming to you with injuries, <laughs> having worked with yeah. a physical therapist, um, but they are coming to you ideally to get faster, fitter, stronger. Um, and, you know, the coach doesn't have to be the expert in all trades, right? right. So you may be the expert triathlon coach, but you aren't the expert strength coach. So working with somebody like yourself, how, tell us about how you might work with a coach, you know, a triathlon coach, for example. Um, and now at Training Peaks, you'll actually be able to share athletes yeah. between the head coach and yourself and, and coordinate things. But are you, are you creating like four week, 12 week programming? Are you doing it week by week, like group sessions, individual, how, and I'm talking about like coaches that are in other states or, or, or countries that you're working with as a consultant. So Tell us about how you work with, uh, you know, coaches. Yeah, it's a pretty fun process. So it's all about understanding what the big picture is. So we sit down and I ask questions or, you know, they just tell me what their goal is. And we kind of talk through what the high level goal of a season is, right? Or maybe in this training cycle, what is the goal we're trying to accomplish? What is your plan? Which now we can share on Training Peaks and say, yeah. Here's your plan. Here's my plan. Right. Boom. All right there. Um, but it's really, really important from there to be able to dissect that macro level and say, what are we looking at here? Big picture wise, we want to improve, you know, Dirk's hip and his ability to, or a triathlete, right? Your ability to swim, bike and run really well. And you have a 
a run deficit. Okay, I might say, okay, what what is a deficit here? Is there a lack of, you know, spring? Is there ground contact time too high? What is our bottleneck that you were trying to identify for this athlete? Okay, we know that in this hypothetical situation, ground contact time is high. They're spending a lot of time in a deep down step. Let's increase their spring. So from there, I may identify gross strength in that range of motion um, as a bottleneck, working with some isometrics. We may identify tendon stiffness and spring as another bottleneck. We may work on some plyometrics and pair that. And then work backwards to the start of that season. Where are we now versus where do we want to be? And then bridge those gaps, come up with a plan. And then, like you said, maybe four weeks, four weeks out, planning things out, right? And then week by week, adjusting based on that to figure out where we are. And then obviously, as you know, session by session. Hey, Dirk, how are you feeling today? Well, you know, I just skied for 15 days in a row and I'm pretty smashed. Okay, let's modify a little bit. Let's work on some things to get us back on track. Right. And with having the coach involved, ideally, you know, the coach may say, hey, I'm planning a big volume week next week. Um, you know, Chris, we need to tone things down. And exactly. But yet, you, I assume we're trying to keep the same frequency going. So it might be the two days a week in the gym or at home or whatever it may be. But that actual intensity or volume within the actual session will adjust based on the swim bike run outside of the strength. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's all very common where a coach and athlete will say, Hey, I added a race or I switched my race schedule. Okay. So then it's up to myself and to work with the coach and athlete and then understand again, okay, what is our goal now? What is the window we have and what's training going to look like? I don't ever want to take away from training, especially if say you're trying to increase top end again, right? So especially on those top end sessions, I don't want to negatively impact their performance. Hmm. Yeah. So how should we think about strength training? Obviously it can make us faster, stronger, but then we hear about prehab injury prevention. Is it all those things? Uh, or are you, do you actually isolate them out somehow? Yeah, I, I have a philosophy that all training is training and a great strength program should encompass all these things somewhere in the program, right? Um, I think that there's a misconception that strength, you know, we all think of the same thing. We think of big jack guy with the barbell on his back doing a squat. And Which I haven't done I think, once in your gym. <laughs> not yet, not yet. So I'm the little weakling that shouldn't do that. No. <laughs> no, I think it's really interesting. The common misconception is there's so many low-hanging foundational elements that can be really difficult, right? Single leg loop bridges, some of those side planks we do, it can be pretty exhaustive, right? And I've never heard the... of or done a curtsy lunge before. I mean, I've been lifting <laughs> for like 40 years and uh, I've done all these exercises this year that I've never even heard of. And like you're saying, like these low-hanging foundational level, you know, strength improvements, which I've, I've found has helped my downhill running. I mean, I just literally can like downhill run faster now because of this stability. Um, and I'm hopefully that's injury prevention as well. Totally. Yeah. It's injury prevention. The one thing that is shown to increase running economy 
funny enough, it's, I think drills are important. Um, we have to take research for what it's worth, but it's shown that strength training increases running economy. It, incre- it decreases uh, likelihood of injury, right? And it increases your power output at a lower metabolic cost, hypothetically, right? So pretty, pretty powerful stuff. And that includes, of course, strength is mobility, strength is prehab, all of these things add up to being strong, right? If you're not mobile, you're still weak. You can't get in, you can't bend over to pick up a pencil, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Or you can get into into a better aerodynamic position on the bike. If you have that mobility that you don't have the hip, you know, impingement or whatever it might be, um, you might be able to get a better aerodynamic free speed, which is through the mobility and strength routine. So yeah, there's a lot of low hanging fruit there. You know, who, who shouldn't do strength training? I mean, you know, it's like, should everybody do strength training? Should 12 year olds do strength training? Like where, where's the outliers of who should, let's start with who should not strength train. That's a great question. (laughs) I think you, if there's an underlying medical condition, um, or you are currently injured, if you're currently injured, you should probably see a physical therapist, right? Or go to your doctor, um, and figure out what's going on. I do think if you have any endocrine disorders, right, that might be something where we want to see what can we handle or anything autoimmune, what can we handle? What's too much, right? So those are some things to think about. I worked with an athlete with uh, Hashimoto's and we had to be very careful on what amount of volume and load that we put on this person because they may not be able to recover very well and it could completely derail them. So there are definitely some situations where I wouldn't say you don't strength train, but I think you have to be very careful in how you dose that strength training. Um, What about masters versus young athletes? Yeah, great question. Masters athletes, that is actually where research has shown it is the most important for masters athletes to strength train. Um, over time, we lose the capacity for being able to generate force very quickly, right? And we lose a little bit of that natural athletic dynamic coordination. And there's um, also the the plyometrics, right? We need to still load those tendons. We have to be wary of, you know, if someone has lost cartilage or, you know, bone deposit in their knees or something, we have to be aware of that. But um, strength for masters athletes, especially with eccentric exercise and the ability to control multiplanar movement is going to be probably the best thing for performance and longevity. So you got to bang for your buck there. All right. You said a couple of words that flew over some of our heads. So I'm going to yeah. go back a step. Okay. <laughs> All uh, right. Eccentric explain that. Yeah. Eccentric. So you're controlling deceleration or slowly coming down it's like starting at the top of a bicep curl and slowly lowering down right or slowly going down into a squat position right so those are absorbing or controlling forces right and a lot of that is in the running motion exactly controlling your landing (laughs) yeah yeah uh and then plyos and we we've heard about plyos should everybody do plyos? You know, it's something about going fast, right? 
Yeah. <laughs> Going fast, jumping, having impact. Plyometrics means there is an impact of involved. Impact forces are involved. If you do have any medical conditions or bone issues, we'll call it, to oversimplify, that's something where you want to be careful. Um, plyometrics need to be properly progressed, properly dosed. And it is very effective if you're healthy or if you're an athlete or just for longevity. Plyometrics, I think, are a must for everyone, for bone health, for tendon health, for just honestly everyday life. No one gets hurt going up the stairs. <laughs> they get yeah, right, hurt coming right, down right. the stairs, right? Right. So, so tell us about like for, for a cyclist and a triathlete or runner, um, what might be some plyometrics to consider doing and are we adding weight? Is it starting out body weight first? What's the speed tempo of it? Yeah. Great question. Uh, runner and cyclist, there are, this is a key variable to evaluate when you're figuring out how to coach an athlete is the demand of their sport. A triathlete runs, there's a higher demand on your joint, your tendons, your muscle tendon unit to absorb impact. So the plyos will be a little bit more progressed later on. A cyclist, a little bit less, right? You don't have that demand. You have high torque demands, right? From cranking on those pedals and your tendons, less impact. Now, regardless, you start with assisted, not body weight. So you're holding on to a band, you're taking away body weight, and you're working on plyos there to work on the movement, progressing to body weight. Um, and then so on and so forth. Now with a runner, you would progress to loaded plyometrics, single leg loaded, maybe holding 10, 15, 20 pounds. You can go up from there if you're pretty advanced. And another way to scale is by height. How high are you jumping up? How high are you jumping down, right? So what is the distance you're covering and velocity there, right? So for a runner, you need to have the ability to absorb quite a bit of forces, right? I think they say in the minimum is 3x body weight is what you're experiencing running, minimum. Um, sprinters can experience up to something crazy. I forget that specific number. Might be 18, don't quote me on that. Um, now, a cyclist, a box jump up, a box jump down, single leg, double leg, right? And doing those with a little bit of weight, that's plenty, right? Now, another way to load those tendons, this little tangent here, it's not a plyometric, but those slow, heavy eccentrics for cyclists can be very, very effective, right? So that's usually when, you know, a cyclist gets some knee pain, riding, they're just grinding all the time, right? You're putting a lot of strain in that tendon. Now you need to be able to move through that range of motion under load as well. Hmm. So what, what about number of reps when we're talking about these box jumps? Are we three sets of 20, three sets of five, like what's that look like? Yeah, I usually start people off with um, with box jumps, big movements, you're just getting used to it. Five reps, building up to seven, 10, um, lower volume plyometrics, or sorry, lower intensity plyometrics, such as pogo hops. That's where you're like jumping rope almost, right? 20, 30 at a time, that's totally fine. I would build up to 30 foot contacts, right? And then, you know, you can go up to 90 to 100 foot contacts, which just means just how many reps you do over this span of a session. Um, 
Now with the loaded stuff, right, our goal is a little bit different. We're not looking for the repetition, right? Between the five to seven is where I would keep people if it's a loaded plyometric or heavy plyometric, or even jumping down from a big box or something. You're putting a big stimulus to the body and that's the goal, a big stimulus. You don't need to do it 50 times. That's yeah. overstimulating. That's an injury possibly. What are the most typical exercises that are in all of your programming? Mm, most typical exercises, this might be a surprise. There least common denominator. What's that? Yeah, least common denominator. Probably uh, dead bugs, single leg loop bridges, um, bird dog rows, and a lateral lunge, right? Moving through that frontal plane. I find a lot of weak and or poor hip core control, which is, you know, shooting a cannon off a canoe is the analogy people use all the time. You know, you're not going to go very far there. We, you know, we spent all this time building our aerobic engine, you know, just like that, that cannon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, firing it off of like a little rubber blow up raft. <laughs> and it doesn't really go, it goes backwards, right? It doesn't go yeah. out and forward. What about like a year round? Are we, are we, are we supposed to be doing minimum two days a week, mm. 12 months a year? Um, how do you cycle in the off season versus the race season? Does frequency change at all through the seasons? You know, how, how might you program that out if you look at an annual cycle? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just wrote about this in a article for you guys. Oh, probably coming out soon. All right. There's a, a common comment I hear often. Oh, I lifted in the off season. I'm good now. <laughs> well, that's typical cyclist. That's like my last 30 years. Yeah, yeah. So with that being said, after 30 days of not maintaining strength training, you lose almost most of that adaptation, right? So you detrain, you get weaker and you may atrophy, right? So endurance sport by nature is catabolic. It breaks you down. Now our goal is to reduce how much breakdown we can have and mitigate that. So a year-round strength training program is very, very important. One, you're mitigating injury and you're maintaining strength, which force production can equal performance, right? If you were to boil it down cycling specifically, right? Watts, force production. Um, now, in the off-season, you have 8 to 12 weeks. You have this beautiful window to make some true physiological changes, which we know take about eight to 12 weeks. This gives us a really awesome thing. It's kind of like your aerobic base. It's your strength base, your, right. your body base. Now your body can go into maintenance mode for the rest of the season, right? Where we maybe reduce frequency. If you were, um, I would say minimum effective dose is two times a week of 40 minutes of strength training, right? In 20 minutes, you're moving into maintenance again, right? 40, you're still building. 60 is if you have all the time in the world and you want to get a great session in, I think is it's 
great. 60 minutes is great. Now, when you move in the off season, you can move from two sessions to three. I don't think you need to go past three. Um, three, you can space out the dose of strength a little bit more, and it gives you more time to build if you have a major strength deficit. Now, we can move to in-season, and we can move back to two, right? Two by 40 minutes is plenty, and you can do a lot of the weights or the exercises that you were doing in the build in the off-season without a lot of tiredness or soreness, right? So you're maintaining. It doesn't take much out of you anymore. So in a nutshell, I think that is the biggest misconception as well. I don't need to strength train through the rest of the season. I'm good now. Well, would you just not ride your bike because you did some base training in the off season? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, and I don't think enough athletes, you know, think about the year-round programming. You know, if they sign up for the triathlon, you know, they think it's going to be 12-week training and they're done but they still have a goal for next year they're like yeah i'm definitely gonna do that next year i'm gonna get faster but it's like you can actually make up some massive you know time gains you know during that quote off season which is a misnomer right i mean (laughs) it's more about the preparation the transition kind of phase if you will and laying that foundation not truly an off season but like shifting the focus of the training away from all the aerobic sports specific, and it can be more, you know, strength focused, um, for those number of weeks. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So now let's, let's go back to in season. Um, or some of this relates to year round, but how many days off between strength sessions? I assume at least a day in between strength. Yeah. One day minimum two days is great. Um, if you can space it out, more than that, that's fine, but try to have one to two days in between. I would say one is advanced. You're you're a strong dude or a gal that is used to it and can handle it. And what about pairing with other types of activity? So triathlete, you know, has multiple, you know, double days, let's say. How might you fit this into a triathlete's uh, training program? Yeah, so there's two ways of doing this. You can train before in the weight room, or you can train after in the weight room. And there's a purpose behind both. Usually for a athlete who's adding strength in, not that experienced, the best case scenario is six hours after training. That gives you enough time to recover from your aerobic workout. Right. So now you can move into that strength session and have enough recovery. Right. So that's one way of going about things. Um, If you have and you want rule of thumb, hard days hard. If you have a super hard day, I'll call it one of those triples in triathlon where you do an early morning swim, you go on a massive ride and you do an hour and a half brick off the bike. Well, that's a big day. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe save it for the next day. Right. And that's where you figure it out with your coach. Like how, how much are we going to lift today? Maybe 40 minutes instead of 60 the next day. Have Um, you seen benefits to lifting prior to a workout and maybe what type of workout? Yeah, this is a, I have a feeling that this might be a a secret sauce in the future. I don't know. (laughs) I'd love to research this a little bit more. It's called, the concept is post activation 
potentiation. And there's another one, post-activation performance enhancement. So you'll see this a lot in power athletes. Track cyclists have used this in the past. Um, you lift heavy, maybe 20 to 30 minutes, right? You would do a heavy hex bar, a heavy eccentric, um, something maximal, right? You rest 10 to 15 minutes between and you get some carbohydrates and some fuel because that's a quite taxing session, right? It uses a lot of glycogen. You want to restore that. Now what it does, it gives you this window where neuromuscularly you're firing really well. So you'll see people in power sports, you're able to jump higher after a session like this. Now it's a power sport and endurance sports are different. However, a key session, we were experimenting and in the gym uh, this past winter with a couple of cyclists to see if we can increase their FTP without changing anything else in their training. Just do your normal base training, right? Whatever you're doing, don't do anything different. Don't do extra speed work. And afterwards, we in the weight room, we did a uh, power workout on the bike, right? We did 10 seconds all out, two minutes rest. 10 seconds all out, two minutes rest. Now your body has already recruited more motor units, so you're able to generate more force. Now you're training those, you're training the more of the muscle to be able to function and get metabolically more efficient, right? So long story short, we had everyone do an FTP test afterwards and wow, FTP numbers went up, right? Maybe 5%, 7%, but that's a significant increase. Yeah. Right. That's not nothing off of a very effective time, effective session where you lifted first and you trained after this is all done in a one hour span. Yeah. So highly advanced method of training. Yeah. No, I could see lifting, you know, in the morning and even doing a sprint workout. Totally. Great, great pairing. 90 minutes, two hours later or whatever, you know, and, and like that transfer or, or even closer. Are you, are you, are you saying gym and 30 minutes later on the bike? Or are we talking a couple hours? Less than 30 minutes, yeah. Yeah, so yeah for that recruitment. So it's shown that, that the max effect you're going to have is within that 7 to 15-minute range. Um, the key there is during that strength session, you have to be taking in carbs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, how about strength training phases? You know, we hear about... Mm anatomical adaptation or, um, you know, max strength, a power phase, a maintenance phase. How do you think about the actual phases of strength training through the year? Yeah, it's, it's the athletic season, right? So it's not about what's happening in the weight room, whatever your coach or your sport demands, that's what your season looks like. So as a strength coach, it's kind of a fun job because every cycling season is different from a triathlon season which is different from a swim season so you have to figure out how to dose based on someone's season um so if you were to break it down four categories you have your off season right your pre-season it's when you start training but there's no competition then you have your in season your competition phase and then you have your championship phase right so i'll break it down those four and in the off season, I think it's a great time to raise your floor, right? Increase strength, mobility, all of your basics of movement, 
quality, whatever you want to call it, whatever term you want to use, right? How well you can use your body. And in the preseason, when training is starting, right, you've adapted to raising the floor. You can work on raising your ceiling. Max strength, right, is a very important thing for athletes, actually. It's, you know, often, often people um, don't do it or they jump right to it. Right, five by five on the hex bar, five by five squats, because it's I read it somewhere. Well, it is true, it's great if you've built up to it, right? So this shouldn't take too much out of you. You can do these things, these five by fives if you want to. That's a great example. If you've raised that uh floor and you've adapted to it. Now in the preseason, it won't take too much out of you, but you're just increasing your capacity. Right? There's less damage to your tissue in those max max um or close to max lifts than there is in a hypertrophy or muscular endurance phase which is like 10 8 9 10 to like 20 reps you get way more sore from that you don't want to do that when you start training um if that makes any sense now in season the goal is now different your goal is to maintain strength and to mitigate injury Right. So you're just maintaining what you've done. You can use plyometrics. It's a great one. Work on those joint ranges of motion. And because training is more intense, that's what we talked about in session, right? Hey, Dirk, how are you feeling today? What are we going to? Oh, your, your ankle hurts a little bit. Your hip hurts. Okay. Let's work on some of the tissue around that area. We'll cover our main lifts to maintain and see what we're working with. Right. And you're just trying to allow an athlete to go through a rigorous season of racing, training, racing, training without taking too much away from their energy. And then the last one, obviously, championship phase. That's same thing. You have maintain strength as much as needed. This is where 20 minute sessions are really effective. Right. So thinking back, we have. Yeah, Yeah, it doesn't take much. Right. We have we will lose strength in 30 days if we don't do anything. But if you do 20 minutes, you're still maintaining minimal effective. Then mitigate injury and modify to the needs of the championship season. Because as most endurance athletes know, it's a kind of a, am I going to make it? Am I not going to make it? I made it. Now I have a small window to hit it, get to the championship race and see what we got. So at that time is um, the most communication intensive that I found between myself a coach and an athlete, it's constantly, how are you feeling? What do we need? What are we feeling? Okay, let's modify here. Let's modify here. Right, yeah. the fine-tuning, fine-tuning yeah, exactly. phase. Yeah. What, and, and is, when I think about like a power phase, is that just another word for plyometrics? Like are you, are you doing anything extra besides plyometrics when it comes to like power, you know, speed output? So I would say power phase is preseason when you're raising the ceiling. That's actually more how, with how much velocity can you move weight, right? So say you squat 100 pounds, okay? We might go with a squat at 45 pounds, but see how fast you can squat with it, right? Or if you normally do three reps of a squat at 100 pounds, right? And you're like moving it heavy, it's slow. Okay, let's decrease that weight to 70, 65 pounds. And I want you to move fast. So now we're talking about a little bit of you know, power, generating power, not just um, how fast can you move a limb? How fast can you move that limb under load? That's power. So is there benefit to a marathoner doing that phase? 
Yeah, a marathon I think is a pretty power intensive um, race if you really think about it. So if you can generate power and then pair that with plyometrics, that could be a pretty deadly combination. Isometrics also very important there. Um, so power, you're learning how to spring or redirect energy, right? Which when you're running, you're redirecting energy. The plyometrics teach you how to load the tendons and create spring. So you're not um, redirecting energy slowly or not absorbing force slowly. You're able to use that energy and spring forward. And I would imagine it's even maybe even more beneficial or equal at least uh, for an ultra runner, you know, trail running. I mean, jumping from rock to rock and descending crazy technical trails and that durability, you know, you, there's one thing for the marathon, but now if you're talking 18 hour, 24 hour, hundred miler, right. That you may not be able to run the entire thing, but to have that durability on those long 3000 foot descents, you know, and Chamonix or somewhere, uh, totally. that, that strength has to like really shine through yeah. in that, in that, uh, scenario. Yeah. We want, if you need to jump onto that rock, we want to make jumping onto that rock feel easy. Not like you just jumped onto a rock and now you need to take a break. Right. But at like 15 hours into the event. Right. Right. Exactly. You know, that durability. So, so that's where that off season phase, I think is even more important. You need to build up that floor and work on that ceiling. That ceiling might be a little less important for you than maybe a 1500 meter runner, right? But that durability is going to be your best friend. So ultra runners that I've worked with, getting them quite strong has been really interesting to see what they're able to accomplish on race day when other people start falling apart. Right. Well, your, your comment about the floor, I mean, I've thought, you know, I've seen things around, you know, marathon prediction times based on what your zone two pace is, you know, you, you know, the zone two for two fifteen marathoner is very high compared to a three hour marathoner. Right. Mm. But too much focus is on the ceiling or the maximum or peaks, right? So by shifting the thought process and thinking about, well, what's my floor? What is my zone one pace, you know? And for some folks, that's 645. You know, for most folks, it's 1030, (laughs) right? So if we can raise that floor, everything else kind of like bumps up along with it. So it's a good thing to think about with, with strength. If my floor falls out from under me because I don't lift for four months a year, I have to restart every single year. Therefore, I have no floor. I'm always trying to rebuild the basic level. Yeah, exactly. And here's a great way to think about it too. Everyone's so afraid of losing fitness, right? Yeah. Oh, if, I, if I stop running, I'm going to lose fitness. Well, guess what? When you have a stress fracture and you can't run, you lose fitness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all worried about that, right? Exactly. Exactly yeah. the so point. Strength training sometimes, if you think about it this way, if you have a race car, you got your engine, which is finely tuned, and you have the chassis of the car and the nuts and bolts, right? The chassis and the nuts and bolts are what allow that engine to rev and you drip. And that's 
strength training for your body allows your body to handle the demands of the crazy stuff that you probably want to do. Where if you don't strength train, your body's going to say, well, hey, Dirk, I can't do this. And now my knee hurts. Right now I yeah. have an injury. Yeah. You know, and, and like, what about tips for beginners that aren't going to the gym? They're, they're going to lay out a foundation. What are some the basic equipment uh, recommendations that you'd have for like a home gym? Man, home gym, all you need is some bands, big power bands, the long ones, small mini bands, a Swiss ball. A dumbbell and kettlebell are nice to haves, but I do have athletes that travel around in a van a lot for ultra running and for other yeah. things. Yeah, the van take life. A, yeah, take a backpack, fill it with a bunch of rocks. Yeah, that can be really heavy. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So whatever you need to do, there's plenty of exercises that we do, as you know, that are body weight. You know, we're spending a lot of time doing body weight exercises because if you can't do a single leg glute bridge and your glutes aren't strong enough for that, can you actually properly squat with great mechanics and activate your glutes well? Maybe, but probably not. Yeah. 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 You know, I don't know. I've maybe done like, 12 weeks with you. I haven't done a single like barbell squat or bench press or any of like the typical football looking, you know, strength routines. And I'd say my, my soreness level at the maximum has been like a four out of a 10. Um, whereas in the past, I think I've jumped in way too hard and I've had 11 out of 10, you know, in terms of like (laughs) soreness days where I was like, I could not train for like two days, you know? So I I think this moderation is, is also lacking when people think about strength. Can you give us last words of like advice around soreness? That's kind of the first thing Mm. people think of, or it might be what's holding people back from even jumping into strength because they've always overdone it and always experience that horrible soreness and you know so just some uh advice for beginners kind of getting into it and how much soreness should they come out of this with yeah so look some soreness is good that's what you need to adapt now you shouldn't be 11 out of 10 you shouldn't have trouble sitting down to eat dinner or get up (laughs) or get up exactly exactly (laughs) what you want to find is with soreness that it's a like you said, a four, a three and a half out of 10, right? Where you're able to feel something going on, but it's not stopping you from doing anything. And in those first six weeks, well, not the whole six weeks, but in the first two weeks, a lot of that is a neuromuscular soreness. That's your brain just saying, this is new, I don't like it, and now you're sore. But if you keep doing it, there's not that much muscular damage involved. now, when you lift really heavy out of nowhere, that is some um, neuromuscular and muscular soreness. That's also your brain telling you, you went too hard. I'm not going to let you keep going, right? So hypothetically, if you're covering these fundamental exercises that we just talked about, your Copenhagen planks, your glute bridges, single leg, double leg, um, some goblet squats, some inline lunges that we've done, hypothetically, when you go to back squat that first time, 
You'll be surprised you might be sore after, but it should be maybe a 3 or 4 instead of straight to 11 and now you're never going to go back to the gym. <laughs> Luckily the 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 light weights now look heavy, you know, those like rubber looking weights. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it look heavy, but it's actually really light. It's only 10 pounds, you know, so it looks like you're doing a lot, but <laughs> yeah, that's what I use and I'm not feeling great. I need an ego boost, so I just put those Yeah. On, yeah. Know? And one last question. <laughs> What is a dead bug? A dead bug is one of the best and what's it core work? exercises you can do. So you are on your back, usually squeezing a Swiss ball between your arms and your knees. So your hands are up here, your knees are bent, and then you lower the opposite arm and the opposite leg while continuing to squeeze that ball. You don't need the ball. It's just it helps to have a reference point. right? And your goal is to not arch your back, keep your lower core really engaged and breathe a lot of people hold their breath we need to breathe otherwise you overuse your neck muscles yeah we do a lot of that engage the abs lower back press your lower back into the ground keep it flat like yeah, yeah. we've done a lot of that so awesome thanks a lot uh thanks for all the great advice and yeah. um look for strength coming out in training peaks soon yeah. Hopefully if not that already certification course will come out at the same time, something we've been All working right. on. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Check that out. And uh, how can people reach you, Chris? Uh, you can find me. Uh, email is chris at kinesisintegrated.com. My Instagram is kinesisintegrated. I try to respond to as many messages as possible. Um, and yeah, you can also YouTube me, Kinesis Integrated. We have like 400 exercises uploaded. Um, but yeah, shoot me a DM, shoot me an email. I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Awesome. Super. Thanks, Chris. You got it, Dirk. Thanks for listening to the Training Peaks Coachcast. Visit trainingpeaks.com for more training and coaching resources.